In church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Would you grab your Bibles, please, and meet me in Romans chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the beginning of the New Testament, the Gospel accounts, and you'll hit Acts if you keep going to the right, and then Romans. Romans chapter 5, we will continue in this series in verse 2, Romans chapter 5, which is a great chapter. <laughs> it's a wonderful text. Um, I just want to remind us that when we uh, gather next week, we'll be gathering under uh, less restrictions, thanks be to God. Um, there will be no registration, there will be no masks required for those who are vaccinated, uh, but for those who are not, we ask that you continue to wear a mask that includes kiddos. We are praying that the Lord would continue to provide those who are in the middle of these uh, vaccine distributions and pr preliminary works that we'd continue to see the opportunity for kids uh, by God's grace this year to do that. But 2 to 12, we're still asking uh, to be masked as we wait for a vaccination possibility uh, with that. But in many respects, I just think hearing and saying those things and like being out in the past couple of days in Chicago and seeing people without masks on is just, uh, we're, we're very grateful. We're grateful that it means that the Lord by his grace is healing the sick and providing opportunities for uh, the people of God to gather and men and women all over the world to begin to gather. So we're continuing to pray. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, which is kind of crazy to think about after 15 months, and yet we are not without hope. Thanks be to God, from whom all blessings uh, come. So we're really grateful for that. Thank you for the ways that you have walked with us as a church family through this as we have learned to um, be CDC compliant. I never thought, I mean, none of my seminary classes said, here's how to be CDC compliant should ever a global pandemic hit your uh, church family. So we're very grateful to God above all uh, other things. Let me, let me read this text for us, uh, pray, and then we will get to work. Romans chapter five, uh, verse two says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These are the very words of God. And we say thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have an innumerable number of things to be grateful for. Yet at the same time, we know in our community there, this past week has been devastation. There's been pain. There has been sickness and loss. There, there has been uh, tragedy and suffering and sin. And so... Father, we lament those things even as we gather to worship and celebration. And so we thank you that, that you have invited us into a space, into a community of worship that is not simply about celebrating, but it's about seeing the truth and beauty of our God even in the valley of the shadow of death. And so, we, God, we desire to commit ourselves to be a people who are always suffering and yet always celebrating, who are always sorrowful and yet always have joy. And, and that's hard to even understand often, Father, and so we need your Spirit's help in this. And so we thank you that your word points us to that reality. It points us to that sort of dual existence that we always have until one day when Jesus returns and set things to rights and all sorrow and suffering will cease and all we will know, it, know is joy and celebration. And so would you prepare us for that today, God, in, in a way that goes beyond our comprehension? Would you prepare us uh, for this hope and glory that we have, as Paul writes here in this text? I want to be clear and responsible with your word today, so I pray uh, that you would help me say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and I pray for my friends, or myself included, as we submit ourselves to your word, would you transform us from the inside out? May we not just make plans to obey your word tomorrow, but with the power of your word, transform us on the spot. It's, it's so good to know. 
your word bears that kind of power and weight. And so we submit ourselves to you, and we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, let me remind us, uh, thank you, Micah. I heard Micah in the back, my five-year-old saying amen. Uh, that's the one time I'll pay attention the entire uh, sermon, so we just want to rejoice and thank God for that. Uh, we're, we're coming to Romans again. Romans is a letter written in the first century to a collection of house churches in first century Rome, and as Paul has sort of repeatedly reminded us, he's writing to both Jews, those who grew up in, in the Hebrew faith as Hebrew children, knowing the God of the Bible, loving the God of the Bible, following the God of the Bible, and others grew up in a much more eclectic plurality of understanding of spiritual things and of gods and deities, and now they're all gathered together as God's people um, to worship Jesus, and, and that is, is, gives, gives us really great hope because in a city like Chicago, in a context, in a church family like we have, all of us have different stories of faith and different stories of spirituality and what it was like growing up as the kid of our parents and of going to the churches or not going to the churches that were in our area. And so it gives us great hope and help. It clarifies for us what it means to be a people of God even today. And what Paul has been repeating for us at the very end of chapter 4 and has sort of transitioned now from chapter 5 is that he, he wants us to know that Jew, Gentile, uh, grew up in the church, did not grow up in the church. You are all saved in Christ by, because he has made you righteous. We are not made righteous because we uh, worked hard. We are not made righteous because we uh, somehow put our life together at just the right time in our own sort of brand of maturity, but because of faith in Christ, we are made righteous. This is what what doctrinally we call justification. It is being saved through the work uh, of Jesus. And, and now what Paul is doing as we move into chapter 5 is he's saying, this actually affects your everyday life, right? This isn't just a doctrine for us to kind of memorize in our heads and said, you know, I've been saved and I have this idea of justification, but this is actually meant to be the lens through which we see all of life. Because the gospel is not just a thing that we add to our life. Amen? The gospel is not just this idea that I have all of these other things, and the gospel happens to be another affinity group that I'm a part of, but the gospel becomes the lens through which we see all things, through which we see God. We understand ourselves. We understand our community. We understand justice. We understand equality. Everything goes through the lens of the gospel. And so Paul is helping us as he comes from chapter 4 into chapter uh, 5. He's giving us implications of justification, impacts, fruit, if you will. And the first one that he described for us is that we have peace with God. That's what we looked at last week. And church, this is such good news. It's such good news, if you remember, that we don't just experience peace, but that before God, we have peace. Before a holy and righteous God, there is peace in Christ. We don't have to fear judgment. We don't have to fear his wrath. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. He has made us righteous in standing with God. So we have peace with him. And so from that peace, now Paul is going to teach us about rejoicing. Two more implications. So the first implication is that we have peace with God because of justification. And then two more implications, the second and the third, is that we can rejoice in hope and that we can rejoice in suffering. That we can rejoice in hope and we can rejoice in suffering. Today we're going to look at rejoicing in hope. And then next week when we come to verses 3 through 5, we'll look at rejoicing in suffering. Now, some of us wonder, why are we breaking down Romans like it's just this part of this sentence and we're just looking at the first half of verse 2? You know, because he is saying so much in that. We need to take a whole week to consider what it means to have rejoicing in hope. We need to take a whole week to understand what it means to be rejoicing in suffering. And also because we think this is the way that they would have gone 
gone through this in the first century. When they got this letter, they would have likely read it aloud to everyone's hearing, maybe a couple of times, chapters 1 all the way through 16, although they would not have had that numerification of the text. They just would have read it like a letter, right? And so then they went back over and over. They gathered weekly to review this particular portion. I remember it saying that. Can we go back and look at that? And they would just dissect these, these texts, this, this understanding of what Paul is writing to them about the nature of their salvation. And so today we're going to begin to talk for a couple of weeks about biblical rejoicing. And so in order to do that as it relates to hope, I want to ask three questions and by God's grace answer it with some semblance of clarity. Uh, first, I want to ask, why should we rejoice? Why should we rejoice? The second is, what are we even rejoicing about? So why should we rejoice and what are we rejoicing about? And then consider, why is biblical justification, or rather biblical rejoicing unique? Why is biblical rejoicing unique? So first, why should we rejoice? Second, what are we rejoicing about? And third, what is, why is biblical rejoicing unique? Why is it different than other types of rejoicing? So first, why should we rejoice? Well, remember, Romans is not alone in speaking about rejoicing and speaking and using this word. In Philippians, Paul famously said, in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say what? Rejoice. And again, I will say what, church? Rejoice. So Paul loves writing about rejoicing. In fact, the letter of, written to the Philippian church, many call it a letter of joy because he is talking about rejoicing. But actually, this word that Paul uses in Philippians for rejoice is different than the word that he uses in Romans for rejoice. There's two distinct ideas. See, in Philippians, as well as in places like James, what biblical writers have in mind is the experience of joy experience the feeling, the elation, that we are always meant to be a people who have joy in the Lord. We always have joy. Even, James says, in the middle of suffering. This is how he opens up his letter to the scattered diaspora, the church um, there in the first century that James is writing. See, what he is saying, and what Paul is saying in Philippians, what James is saying in his letter, is that we have this untouchable, in Christ, we have this untouchable wellspring of life, of happiness even, of pleasure, and of joy in Christ, which is never threatened, hear this, by the pains and persistent problems of this world. Remember how we used to sing, if you grew up in the church, I've got the joy, 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 where is it? Down in my heart. In, in other words, it's untouchable. You can't touch this joy. But that's actually not what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. He's talking about something else. Something that I think comes before understanding what that joy, 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 joy down in your heart is all about. Look again at verse 2. Paul writes that because of our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So remember, peace in verse 1 is not an emotion, it's not an experience, it's about our standing before a holy God. This is, this is peace with God, which leads to the peace or the experience of God, the peace of God. So peace with God, when my relationship with God is one marked by peace, then I can actually experience peace. I can actually live in peace because I have peace with God. This is what we looked at last week. So we can say that peace with God actually leads to the peace of God. Similarly, the experience of joy from Philippians chapter 4 is the result of the fact that we have something to truly rejoice about, right? So I can have joy because I have something to rejoice about. 
our rejoicing or boasting is the reason that we can be glad. It's the reason that we can be happy. It's the reason that we can know the joy of the Lord, right? That darkness may come for the night, that sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning for the follower of Jesus. Why? Because something has taken place. Because we have had an, an encounter with joy. Therefore, I think the better translation of this Greek word rejoice in Romans chapter 5 is the word boast. It's to boast. It helps us to understand a little bit more about what Paul is talking about, we, that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, when we hear that word boast, some of us maybe bristle at, at that, and I think rightly so. We think about celebrating, gloating, or glorying in ourselves or in something that we have done. And James, in fact, te in fact teaches us, James chapter 5, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Right? So there is a kind of boasting that the biblical writers help us to see that's always wrong. It's always evil. It's always anchored in self. But Romans 5 is not a prideful boast. It is a humble and holy boast. Why? How can we say that? Because we're not the reason for this boasting. You and I are not the reason for this boasting. Why should we boast? What does the text actually tell us? Look, look back at it. Just put your eyes on it. It says because we have what? Obtained access obtained access into grace. This is why we can boast. This is why we can rejoice. Why should we rejoice? This is our first question, because we have obtained access into grace. Not because I feel a certain kind of way, not because I have this experience or this emotion. Rather, we boast, we rejoice, because we have access. But what's that even mean? Well, the word access is frequently used in, in ancient writing, to, or even ancient culture, when someone is introduced to a monarchy, a king or queen, to whom they could not have made the introduction themselves, right? So they, they have an encounter with the monarchy because someone else who has access has given them access, right? So we're talking about a commoner being welcomed into the court of a king or a queen. They have obtained access by the will and the merit and the value and the power of another. In fact, if you're reading along with us in 1 Samuel, then you have you read last week about this idea that, that David, before he is king, is invited into the court of Saul, who is the king, because someone else knew about him who had access to Saul. Someone who has access to Saul says, hey, you've got this evil spirit tormenting you. You may need someone who knows how to play a sweet tune. I know David. He plays a sweet tune. He's a man of God. He has a great reputation. Let me go get him. David obtained access because someone else who had access gave it to him. Am I preaching to you yet? This is why we can rejoice. Because someone who has access to the Heavenly Father, someone who is in the court of the God of the universe, says he or she is with me. Right? This is what God in Christ has done for you and me. This is why you rejoice. And here this church, it's even better than that. Justification is not a process. Justification is an announcement. Justification is something that happens in the immediate, in, the, in an instant. So when you have been welcomed into the court, you are immediately in that court. You have obtained that access. You're not building up to varsity level attendance with God. You immediately have complete and full access as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Not based on your merits, but based on the access granted to you and the merits of another. That's really good news. This is why we rejoice. What Paul is saying to us then is that in the same way that a commoner is introduced to a king on the merits of another, so too in Christ, you and I, cosmic commoners, have been invited to obtain access of grace to the king. So why should we rejoice? 
Why should we boast? Because we feel a certain way? I don't know about you, I don't feel the same kind of way every single day. Even in the same kinds of situations and spaces and moments. Rather, this is not why we boast, but rather because we have been welcomed into the very presence of God by the merit, the love, the righteousness, and the goodness and mercy of Jesus. We rejoice because we have obtained access. And what's more, what's really, I think, encouraging too, is that this text, the verbs in this text are found in the perfect tense. That means that that, that particular kind of usage means that a, a single action has lasting effect. In other words, that you and I have obtained access not once until you, we find out you don't deserve it. Not until you mess it up. You have obtained access by a single act that has lasting effect. So if you have obtained access, you will keep access, you will continue to have access yesterday, today, and forever because of the work of Christ. See, this is an instantaneous thing with lasting effect. Sanctification is a process. Justification is an instant announcement, a transformation of your heart. The old is gone, the new has come. Once you didn't have access, and now in Christ you do. And so what is our boasting? Why do we boast? Because we have an access that was given to us. We have concert with the Heavenly Father. That means when you pray, God hears you. In Christ, when you pray, God actually hears you. Have you ever gotten over that? Because we shouldn't. Because that is one of those everyday moments. My justification changes the way that I pray because I know I'm actually praying to God mediated by the access or power or merit or love or goodness or truth of Jesus. He is the one who enables that to happen. So this is why we rejoice. But what specifically are we rejoicing about? What is the object of our boasting? Look again at the second half of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are rejoicing in what Paul calls hope of the glory of God. He's speaking about the future. He's speaking about something of tomorrow, if you will. So he moves from a matter, in a matter of verses, from our justification that we were saved, to our sanctification that we are being saved, to our glorification that we will be saved, all based on the work of Christ. So how he has saved us is how he keeps us, is how he has secured us for tomorrow, because the access to grace Jesus has given us is permanent. Our, our past and our present and future are secure in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that today. Church, there's nothing you could do today where God would kick you out of the access you have been afforded by grace. There's nothing you could do. There is nothing you could fail to do. To be sure, we could sin and he would correct us, but he, you will never lose the access to which Jesus has given you into the presence of God that you, for, with whom you have peace. It's eternal. It's secure. There's so many things about tomorrow we don't know. Isn't that true? I have no idea what's going to happen. But we know we're going to have access by grace. We're going to have access to grace because we have peace with God as, as proclaimed through the work of Christ. So everything... Everything we could boast about, everything we could rejoice about as followers of Jesus is grounded in this idea, our future security or hope of glory. The, the Bible promises that one day, this is so good for us, church, hear this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. One day that Jesus will present the church to himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
So you and I individually and you and I corporately as the people of God will be complete, will be whole, will be without imperfection, will be fully as he has intended us to be, whole in the presence of God. This is what we are rejoicing and boasting about all the time. But it's not a prideful boast because we're not the ones doing it. We're not the ones who have done it. It's a humble and holy boast because it is anchored in the mercy and goodness and merit of Jesus. See, when we look to the future, and we know that we will be whole and complete spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, that should lead to rejoicing and become the lens through which you and I see our entire existence, that we see everything happening in our lives. Because ours is a future which is rooted in the work of Christ. Ours is a future rooted in the person of Christ. Ours is a future which has already transformed our past. Ours is a future which is already taking hold of our present. Ours is a future when and where all shall be well. This changes then how I see myself, how I see the world, how I see everything. Yesterday, today, forever. As Dr. Tim Keller writes, explaining this particular text, he says, in Christ we have been freed from our past, Our old record of rebellion and sin is put away, and we have peace with God. We are free in the present to to enjoy personal relationship with God, and we will one day most certainly experience the freedom of life lived in the full, awesome presence of God's glory. What's that mean? Well, sisters and brothers, if you are riddled with guilt and shame about your past, in Christ you have been freed from your past. My sisters and my brothers, if you are fearful today about where you stand with God in Christ, you have peace, you have grace, and you have hope. Church, if you are overwhelmed about the prospect or uncertainty of tomorrow, in Christ you can rejoice in the hope of glory. See, all of this is possible, isn't it? Because Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, our status with God does not change because God does not change. Our our peace with God does not change because God does not change. If, If he moved the target, if he changed his character, he wasn't the same yesterday, today, and forever, we would not have hope because we wouldn't know what kind of God we'd wake up to the next day. But because he is consistent, because he is faithful, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, our hope, our peace, our joy is secure. This should settle us in the middle of the storm. See, we boast and we rejoice in a hope of the glory of God. We boast in the Lord. It's the hallmark of our faith. Jeremiah wrote about this centuries before the Apostle Paul ever started writing letters? Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, God says, I delight, declares the Lord. We do not boast in ourselves. There's no hope in that. We boast in our hope, this hope of glory, knowing that the Lord who is faithful and loving and just and righteous today will be so tomorrow and forever. And we know that he is perfecting and even working these qualities in us. He's helping us to be more hopeful today than we were yesterday. He's helping us to be more faithful today 
than we were yesterday, to be more joyful today, to rejoice rightly today if we erred yesterday. That's what we're rejoicing about. That's what we're boasting about. So we rejoice because we have eternal access to grace. And we rejoice about a rooted future. We boast, we rejoice in the Lord. But why? Why is our rejoicing, this kind of rejoicing or boasting, different from what the rest of the world boasts about or rejoices in, and maybe even what we are tempted to rejoice in on a weekly and daily basis? What is it about this boasting, what is it about this rejoicing that is uniquely biblical and intrinsically true, unlike other options? See, after all, some may say, it's cool that that's what the church rejoices about. I'm happy for you. I'm happy that that makes you happy, right? If you follow this kind of line of thinking consistently. If you find joy in that, great. It's good that that's your rejoicing, but this is my rejoicing. So how can we definitively say that this is distinct, that this is different, that this kind of hope is beyond simply our preference or some sort of like spiritual uh, idea that we have that is different from other meritous sorts of ideas? See, meaning that this kind of uh, vision of the future may be good for us, but is it, really the tr is it really true? This hope may make us feel good, but why can't others choose what makes them feel good or what, what hope they desire to have? Why can't we rejoice in things, and I'm just going to look at three things. Why can't we rejoice in optimism? Why can't we rejoice in pleasure? Why can't we rejoice in karma? These are three things I think that we often try to find rejoicing in. First, let's remember, one of the distinctions of biblical rejoicing is that biblical rejoicing is, is not uh, anchored in ourselves. It's, and it's not about how God makes us feel. It's about the, the access. It's about the relationship. It's about reality of something that's actually taken place. So our boasting, let's just make sure that this is in our heads. Because I just know I'm so tempted to just go, well, how do I feel about it? That's just not what Paul is writing about. He's writing about a reality, not an emotion. And so th that's what is different from the outset about our boasting. But what's more is that hope is only worthy of rejoicing if it's real. Hope is only worthy of rejoicing if it's real. Or to put it this way, hope is only beautiful if it's true. And I think this is something that we struggle with on a daily basis. Because beauty in many respects is disconnected from truth in our present day. Something may look beautiful, it may look happy, it may be joyful, and we don't really want to investigate whether or not it's true. It may spoil the bunch, right? But, but hope is really only hopeful if it's true. So, let's consider these three things quickly. See, instead of rejoicing in Christ, many of us may be tempted to rejoice in optimism. And scores of books and self-help videos and these sorts of things, documents have been written over and over again, articles about the power of positive thinking. And in fact, this is a kind of salvation by positivity, which is rampant, I think, even in the evangelical church. When, when we don't have masks on, if we see somebody without a smile, we go, they must be sinning. They must have done something wrong. Like, you need to smile. Be happy all the time. And we misquote a verse, take it out of context, and act like it says smile when you come to church. It doesn't say that. So we can have this, this hopefulness and positivity. Despite the odds or circumstances, we may uh, purpose and see, we may purpose to just simply think positively about the future. And if we can't do that, then we don't understand our faith. We don't understand ourselves. We, we just say, just be happy. But isn't it true, like when we're honest about our world, sometimes I'm, I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy about some of the things that we see. We shouldn't rejoice at some of the things that we see. We should long and ache that God would redeem them, that God would save us in the middle of those things. Some things positivity can't conquer. We need some sort of transformative kind of work. See, because at the end of the day, positivity is just wishful thinking. It's just wishful thinking. 
It may or may not be true. And here's the adage. It's that think good, be good. That if I think good thoughts, right, sort of, sort of Disney animation philosophy, think good thoughts and you'll, you'll be good. Secondly, I want to be harsh for your joy and for mine. Others, instead of rejoicing in, in Christ, we may rejoice in pleasure. This perspective, I think, is all about enjoyment and feeling good. So whereas, you know, the idea of optimism is think good, be good, here now we have an idea that is feel good and be good. That if I, I have good experiences that feel nice, eat, drink, uh, sleep, be merry for tomorrow, you will die, right? This philosophy is a boasting, ultimately. It's a rejoicing that is even prevalent within the church. Just do what brings you gladness. Do what brings you pleasure. And Paul, by the way, addresses this. I think, in a scathing review of the, the, the Corinthian church. He is addressing this idea of salvation through pleasure or salvation through comfort. Feel good, be good does not ultimately bring about hope. It doesn't actually change our circumstance. Thirdly, instead of rejoicing in the hope of Christ, some of us are committed to rejoicing in karma, boasting in karma. Now, this might seem very odd, but, but many of us do have this sort of worldview now, karma, of course, is this idea that if I put good out into the universe, good will come back my way. And many Christians actually trust in karma more than they trust in Jesus. They trust this idea that if I do good things, it will sort of put the God of the universe on the hook, and he'll have to do good things for me, which is really not what the God of the Bible reveals to be true about himself. This is something that we have superimposed a sort of modern idea upon him. And this is, this is a kind of uh, salvation by recycling, if you will. That, that if I do good things and, and if I behave well, if, if I do responsible adult kinds of loving my neighbor and earth and all of this sort of thing, then ultimately good will come back. What I put out into the universe will come back to me. If I'm doing good things, good things will come back to me later. In other words, this is kind of like manipulation of the future. I can sort of engineer the way things that happen. So, in that particular regard, it's do good, be good. So we have these three different options. Think good, be good, feel good, do good, do good, be good. So it's this whole idea that I can change myself. I can be good. I can experience the goodness if I think, feel, or do the right things. But each is really a boasting in self, isn't it? It puts my future in my hands. This is why biblical hope, biblical rejoicing is different. Ultimately, all of these are simply what James, again, what he wrote about, that all such boasting is evil. Why? Because it neglects the hope of glory, and it places the hope and the glory in ourselves. It's not built upon anything that's lasting. It's not built upon anything that lasts, because ultimately, each is simply a disguise for pride and for self-reliance. God, help us in this. And by the way, optimism is daily tempting for me. That one looks really good. I just feel like if I put on a happy face and everything's going to be fine, COVID has beat that philosophy out of my head, just for like transparency here. Because I don't feel happy as much. And, and optimism hasn't been working. Remote learning is really a challenge still, right? We have one week left. Like all of these things are still like in the middle of us. It seems like there's grief and turmoil and sorrow and these things, and I can't just put on a happy face and change it. This is like really something we got to live out and work out in our own, our own lives. See, rejoicing in the hope of glory is different. It's not salvation by positivity. It's not salvation by comfort or recycling. It's salvation by grace. It's the belief that Jesus has introduced me forever to grace. He has given access to me to the presence of God. It's a rooted future. In other words, this is not think good. 
This is not feel good. This is not do good. Rather, what, this, what is this? God is good, and he makes me his own. God is good, and he makes me his own. See, it's a boasting. It's a rejoicing, but it's a humble boast in Christ. May we be a people today that rejoice like that. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. So often I am tempted to boast in my own power, to boast in what I think, what I feel, and what I can do, and yet all of that misses what the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, that I don't really think I can boast in my weakness, in my brokenness. I think that those things somehow can't overcome, and yet that's exactly what we can do when we have this hope of glory that has been provided to us, that has been by your son, we have been introduced to, we have obtained access. And so I pray for my sisters, I pray for my brothers, would you settle their souls in the truth of your word today? That though their sins may be like scarlet, they have been washed white as snow. That though guilt and shame may whisper stories about their past, that your word and you are a very present help in time of trouble and you have saved us. I pray if we are fearful or worried about our present standing with you, would you ground us in this reality of peace and rejoicing that we have and hope. And Father, if we're fearful of tomorrow, would you remind us that because Christ is alive and well seated right now, ruling and reigning over all things, that there is not a square inch in this universe that he is not Lord over. I pray that that too would settle our souls, that we might rightly worship you in spirit and truth. There is so much joy and hope in that, God. So may we be a people who rejoice. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.